put a list on a tax form or something where he works. It would be at Waymakers down in Austin, Texas, where he was the, both the founder and the director. But it's hard to imagine a stronger and more a, a greater breadth of missions credentials from author and educator, editor of missions publications, as well as hands-on missions practitioner, if I could say that, use that term. But he brings, underlying all those credentials, a real passion for what missions is all about, because he got glorified around the world. So Steve, why don't you come and bring what's on your heart this morning? Well, it's a real joy to be with you in this uh, this uh, fine New England day. Uh, my wife Barbara is here. I want to uh, thank her for coming along with me and uh, making this a, a joy for us to, to long remember being with you. Now, the theme for this uh, this mission conference, and it is interesting, a lot of people haven't been part of a mission conference before. It's just a time of focusing, of what, uh, not, not to get it out of the way so we don't have to do that again for another year. But more is because, to, to, because it means so much that uh, it integrates everything that we might ever want to do. Uh, and it makes sense of all the, the diverse things kind of pulls together. And it's not just that there's a sunset shot going off into the global sunset, you know, that, oh, plus we have the, the people out there reaching amongst the needy. It's not an add-on. It can be an, an, uh, an integrator, not an add-on. And so, uh, actually, that's what you're going to hear today in this, this morning's message to do more to, to reintegrate your life uh, and the focus of, of what your life is all about and, uh, th- th- than almost any other message you might hear. Because actually, let me warn you a little bit about missions. It's, it's mildly toxic. Uh, if you uh, try to take a missions thing as, a, as kind of a, an extra activity that you might kind of take on and see if you can handle that, another ball in your life and... T- and uh, in the juggling act that you've uh, tried and failed several times at, you know. But it feels like we coulda, shoulda, oughta try to reach the needy out there kind of thing in our spare time if we have spare cash and so on like that. And if you take on an obligation like that, that's, that's, that's another little portion, and try to add it onto your life in your, what, in your spare time. You haven't had spare time since you were like five years old. So what are you, what are you, what are you pretending to do? But we want to so much, we know there's something that, that is valuable, it's precious to being engaged in, 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 in something that's missions, you see. We know there's something right about it, and yet when we try to do it as an extra activity, it turns into another piece of mail and three pieces of mail and uh, where are we supposed to write them a check and how much do we pledge and, and, uh, and it becomes bothersome, irritating and you, a lot of people sign up and they, and, they, uh, and, and they kind of binge out on all kinds of activity then they kind of burn out then they bail out and they go through another uh, maybe they'll sign up a couple of years later for something else I, I call it a compassion spasm you just kind of <laughs> go through that and so uh, uh, some of you have kind of worn yourself out on what you think missions might be. And I want you to listen carefully this morning because, because what God wants to do is integrate our lives with singular, beautiful focus so our lives have a meaning and significance. And so listen carefully. The, of course, the theme for the entire mission conference is, is lift up your eyes. We're going to go to the passage where Jesus himself said that. But actually the name for this message is, is not thirsty, still hungry. 
Now, you know, I'm not, you know, this is not, you know, the name for the second service message or something. Uh, not thirsty, still hungry. You'll pick it up as we go. Now, um, the background, of course, we're going to go to John 4. You may want to pick up, pick a Bible out of the pew or one that you brought. Take a look at uh, John 4. And uh, John 4 is this story that's quite familiar. It's the woman at the well. So, oh, the woman at the well story. I know that story. Well, uh, there's, let me give you a little backdrop. I'm going to give you several things. Just give you a backdrop. Then we'll just go into the, the story of this message and we'll find out some amazing, amazingly significant things for your life. There was big revival meetings down south. John Baptist was baptizing people. And, uh, and the people were signaling their, 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 their turn of life. They wanted to be on the right side of, of the great thing that was coming. God's kingdom was coming. They didn't want to be uh, found on the wrong side of that. Here come to judge, and you wanted to be right with God. And so a lot of people, thousands, thousands of people, coming down to the river, hearing the message day after day after day, because he was teaching. He wasn't just getting people wet. John was teaching how to live a different life in line with what God was doing. And uh, he wasn't preaching against the wrath that is to come or how to, how, to, how to protect yourself from the wrath that's coming. Some people were coming down, just kind of, kind of a religious lucky thing, you know. And uh, he, John says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It wasn't me. It wasn't giving him a, a little cute way to evade God's coming wrath and how to prepare for, for you know, the, the millennial turn, you know. And you probably still have a few gallons of water in your basement. But... Um, uh, but so these guys were kind of protect themselves. He wasn't about the wrath that was to come. John Baptist was all about the one who was to come, and he came. This this messianic splendor of a person was coming, and John says that's him. And his followers were were kind of what do we do now? Because that's the one we were all waiting for. But you're here, and he's here. And John said go after him. And so a lot of John's followers go after Jesus, and. And Jesus, amazingly, continued the revival meetings. He continued pre- preaching and teaching the same kind of message as John, and he was baptizing people. Too. Actually, Jesus himself didn't baptize, but he got his followers to do it. He had some key followers already that he'd met, and, he got the, and they were the ones baptizing. Now, this big revival meeting, when how Jesus ever called it off and says, okay, go home, we're done. But somehow that happened, because we find him in John 4, moving from the south part of of the country where the, the Jordan River crossing was and the big revival meetings. They were going from the south part of the country to the north part, Galilee, where they all lived. Pretty much they're all Galileans. And to go, to go get there quick, they, t- took, uh, they didn't follow the river or windy road. They went straight up north right through Samaria. Now Samaria was a, was a part of the country that was filled with Samaritans. And Samaritans, there was this racial, religious... Antipathy and hostility—it was—it was—it was classic racism, you know. And you know, you know how racial tensions go. You can kind of measure them on a bandwidth of one to five or something. And and sometimes there's a little mild kind of distance, but it's oh, if ever, you can laugh and joke. And other times there's icy distance, you know, and hostility. You wouldn't even uh, cross the path. Well, somehow this is in between one and five somewhere. The Samaritans. And so these guys were headed right through Samaria. And they, were, they knew that we, they couldn't get a Motel 6 and stay overnight or anything like that. But they ran out of food and they needed to grab something quick to eat. And, uh, and the, the, at least the racial tensions were calm enough where they, could, they would uh, condescend to eat some of their food and that kind of thing. And they could negotiate a, probably a really crummy price. But they got, they got some food. Now, 
they knew that there was this well out in the middle of uh, the roadway uh, where you could stop and get a drink. Somehow, all tired and, and late and hot, they, they stopped and, and, and they didn't have any food. So one of the guys says, uh, 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 we need to get some food. And uh, one of you guys want to go with me in the town there and get some, what, what, McBagels? I don't know whatever they were getting quick, you know. But uh, I don't know why it took 12 guys to go get them. They said, well, yeah, well we better all go. Well, Jesus says, I'll get the drinks or something like that. But somehow we end up with Jesus out at the well alone, all 12 of the guys in the, in the city. If there were 12, we don't know exactly. Does it get the backdrop there? So Jesus himself alone. And you know what happens. This woman comes out, get water in the middle of the day. A lot of stories, and I think a lot of made-up things about uh, that preach really well. But uh, I'm not so sure how true they are, because um, they're all speculation pretty much. But this woman, she comes out, and, uh, she, and Jesus engages her in conversation about you know, living water. And you've read this, you know this. And, and uh, Jesus says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. And she says, she basically talks about it a little bit and says, she bites, she bites on this. She says, okay, I'll go for that. Give me this living water. Jesus says, go call your husband and come here. And she says, well, I don't really have a husband now, and that kind of thing. And uh, actually, Jesus says, yeah, you're right. You have, you've had uh, five husbands, and uh, the one you have is not, is not your husband now, the, the, the person you're in the household of. And the woman said, I perceive you're a prophet. And what she wanted to talk about was the temple. She wanted to know what this temple was. Now, I just want to re- recast what this woman's all about. Because uh, she's often been, been uh, t- talked about as if she's a very immoral woman, kind of um, uh, slept around and all that kind of thing, a, a kind, of, uh, kind of a serial marrier. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, suppose, I suppose that could be uh, possible and plausible. And you know how you'd feel about somebody. What if you're a temporary office worker, get to work, a new office, and there's women next to you. Hey, I'm Doris. I'm getting married next Thursday. We may move it up to Wednesday. It's my fifth. You want to come? <laughs> what would you think of Doris? You'd have plans, you think. Maybe you don't want to just show her. What? And, and what would you think of Doris? You know, in our society, you would think very, you know, would have great, great admiring you know, thoughts of great esteem for, for, for Doris and her proclivities. What would you... So we, we, we know what that kind of lifestyle might be like. Well, it turns out we've... we've, we've kind of, I think we've overlaid those kind of speculations and thoughts on this woman. Because let me ask you a question that you probably already know the answer to. Maybe you haven't thought of it before. Who did the divorcing in that day and in that culture? Oh, you know the answer. Some of those said, oh, the, wait, the men did the divorcing. So how is it this... In that society, still to this day, the, the, the women don't have any say-so and stuff like this. They, they, they don't have conversations like, John, I just don't think it's working out. I, I, if we had more space, we just kind of live separate. I think I, think I could kind of get focused and, and regroup. Maybe we need a little time apart or something. This is a, not the kind of conversations go on in Jesus' day in that society. It was basically, the man had the, had the total right, and it's wrong that they'd have this, to so just send the woman away. Maybe the, she, she was shaming him because there's no children. What if she was just barren? Grounds for divorce. I didn't get any children out of you. On, on your way. And so it's just as possible, more likely, that, that this woman is an abused woman than she is an immoral woman. And so what about the guy she's shacking up with now? That's not... The, we don't know that. She could have attached herself to a household, saying, I'll carry water, I'll do anything, I'll just help with the scullery work. 
What, 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 that, 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 just, just please don't uh, uh, throw me out on the street with the shame of having to become a prostitute and walk the streets. Could be that's what's going on more than anything else. Now, just as plausible as any other. Well, the, the, my, my point doesn't hang on that point. I just want you to wake up to a different kind of things maybe going on there. And I, which is why this woman, knowing how things work in her society, she hears Jesus talking about something wonderful coming forth. You know, a, a, a new, uh, is some sort of living water. So she wants to talk about the temple. And I could speculate, uh, I have some ideas about what that is. But, uh, but um, I think she's going for it. She basically says, okay, if I join up with what you're doing, if I, if I say yes and, 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 and you open up some sort of religious way of walking with God for me and all that kind of thing, something like that, how could I ever really belong to anything? I'm barely hanging on to my society by my fingernails, you know. They won't even let me in the door in your whole system. You see, that's what she's really, she's playing for. She's not trying to smoke screen and, and, and change the subject, as some have guessed. I think she's getting right down to it. She says, don't tease me. I can't become part of what you're doing. At the heart of it, I can't become a worshiper along with your people. You have rules that exclude people like us. And Jesus says something amazing. I love this. Uh, he, he, he says in verse 21, He says, Woman, believe me. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know. For salvation is for the Jews. Oh, excuse me. Just misread that kind of on purpose. What does it say? Salvation is from the Jews. It's not for them. And Jesus knew exactly that. He says, now it's bursting forth. The salvation God began with the Jewish people is going on everywhere. And that's why he, Jesus knows what time it is. An hour is coming. It's so soon that it's already started. The hour, the hour that is coming, the crescendo, the finale of history, the great thing that God is going to finish, it's already begun. This is an early time zone. It's already earlier than you think. It's already later than you think, actually, is what, what he's saying, excuse me. Uh, and, and, and right now, and, and it's coming to you soon, when true worshipers, listen to this, shall worship the Father in spirit and truth, and why would we ever think people could do that? Because they attached themselves to the right guru. They, went, they found their own way up to the mountain. No, it says, for such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And Jesus, the heart and soul of what Jesus was seeing. If you lift up your eyes, you're going to see this. You're going to see not so much needy people. You're going to see a seeking God. And Jesus, with the centerpiece of Jesus' life, was, was this Father that was seeking something and unfolding this purpose over aeons, over, over generations, over centuries, over millennia. The Father seeking worshipers from every tribe and tongue. He's gone to expensive, extravagant purchase price. So the blood of His Son to purchase for Himself people to be priests to Him, men and women and children, to serve Him and to worship and to honor Him and delight Him and to obey Him, to be His lovers to be the ones that delight in Him, to be part of His faith family. He's purchased them. You can't ante up that price any further. The blood of His Son. And the Father is so earnest, so zealous, so seeking after this. He's going to find them. Can you imagine God just saying, I searched all over, couldn't find anything. I just, wasn't, I just couldn't, I couldn't locate it. No, this is the kind of seeking where God is so earnest and zealous, He's going to get it. 
And he's going to get tongues some from every tribe and tongue. And Jesus knows this is why history is taking so long. It's because God is unfolding His purpose and it cannot fail that He will find and seek out for Himself and gain to Himself worshipers from every tribe and tongue. You could sooner slow down a, a freight train going by. I know you've put pennies down there, but maybe you've thought, well, what if I just slow that thing down? You know, can you imagine? I'd like you to. Somehow, to feel the immensity of this thing. You could sooner slow down a, a speeding freight train than you could get in the way of God seeking worshipers for Himself. He's so after this. You have a passionate God. And He's passionate about gaining for Himself worshipers. Not that He needs the worship. No, he's, he's, he's fine. He, he's, he's perfectly honored and, and, and delighted in himself. But he knows as he loves people to draw them to himself, he, he exalts them and lifts them into the, the, the finest position and place they could ever find. And that is loving and being an honored worshiper before God. So he, Jesus says, woman, believe me. What would you do if Jesus looked you in the face and said, woman, believe me? I think you would. I think she did. And, th- and she's adding it all up. She's putting it together. And, 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 and she, says, she says, well, I know everything's going to wrap up. She knew some stuff. She knew some stuff about the background. That was the amazing thing about the Samaritan people. God had prepared things with the Samaritan people. This wasn't just a, a, a blank slate situation. She knew about there's a Messiah coming. And it's, he's going to finish it all. He's going to pull it all together. What you're talking about is so good, but I, I think that isn't that part of the messianic splendor at the end of days, at the end of the age that's promised by the ancient prophets? Isn't that what's going on there? So when the Messiah comes, I, 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 I can buy that. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Wow, what an amazing moment. She's got to be thrilled. At that very point, verse 27 says, you know there was a moment because it says at that point, that very moment, his disciples come up, bags of stuff, so grumbling about the rotten price they got, and he's like five days old, this is really, and uh, you know, and uh, kind of, we better eat, we gotta go, I don't know if we can make Capernaum, no way, we can barely make Nazareth, my uncle will let us in, so let's go. So they're eating, it's that kind of thing, so they, they but, but wait a minute, who's this lady? Have you ever been in a, in a situation where you, where you know what people are thinking, but they're not saying it? Kind of an icy, awkward situation. Almost like those cartoons, little bubbles. Bup, 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 bup. You know, and you see the thoughts. You can read it, but they're not saying it. That's exactly what verse 27 describes. Because they come up and no one said, What do you seek? Which is, they're glaring at the lady. What do you want, lady? And, and some of them were staring at Jesus, saying, What, what are you talking with her for? You know, but no one say anything. What? Ten seconds? Twelve? Fifteen? People looking, glaring, bewildered, you know. And finally the woman breaks, not the silence, but she says she leaves her water pot and goes off. Well, she doesn't just go away. She goes into the city and says something to the men. Why did that woman leave her water pot and go into the city and say something to the men? I've asked a lot of people to think about this. And always some new possibility. But uh, some people think, well, she's all excited. Let's go tell everybody. Okay, fine. That's probably it. Well, well she's a good hostess. <laughs> well, well, you wanted a drink, but there's 13 of you. So here, keep the water by. Let's just uh, drink. I'll come back for it. Could have been. I think she's being obedient. What's the one thing Jesus had told her to do? Go call your husband and come here. Tricky endeavor. But that's exactly what she's, she steps out to do. 
because she says she leaves her water pot and goes into the city and says something to the men, not to the people, the men, the leaders of the community. And what she says, the coming a man who told me everything I'm, I've done. She's trying, she knows this is the, messi- the Messiah. She believes. How is she going to come in there? A woman, of, uh, a woman, even the finest, highest, highly esteemed woman in the community couldn't tell the men what's going on here because women didn't have that kind of leverage in that, so, that society. And so what, she's just brilliant. She says, oh, what do I know? This, this guy claiming to be the Messiah and all that, what do I know? Some of you men ought to come out and check him out because, you know, you guys know more. Or something, something like this is going, come meet a man. Plus, he told me everything I have ever done. So six guys going, what? <laughs> we were there, you know. And, um, and so it's just, it's just brilliant uh, move on her part to leverage, you know, the leaders of the town. And look what they do. They actually, she gets it moving quick. They don't go, oh yeah, you met a Jew this time, fine, right? Just, would you quit hanging out with those people? You know, they're, they're all kinds of religious somethings. No, these guys quit what they're doing and step out. That's a, that, that woman, was she knows the ways of, of, of men and women and leaders in society. She knows, like most people on the undersides of society, they know how things really work. So she, uh, she, she works that one brilliantly. So to be continued on that count. Meanwhile, they're having a picnic by the well. And, uh, and uh, they're eating those, their stuff fast, and they've got to make Galilee by sundown. Jesus hasn't eaten anything. And so this, somebody, one of the guys politely kind of control, you know, you know, the kind of guys that are the watch keepers in the group, you know, it's like, come on, we've got to go. Who is that, Bartholomew? Anyway, uh, Bartholomew says, Jesus, uh, Rabbi, very polite, need to eat up, let's go, back on, we've got to roll here, just like you were leading us here. And Jesus says this, I have food to eat you don't know about. Well, that got him all talking. What, have you given him something? Did he bring something? Was he been breaking bread again? You know, you never know about Jesus. Uh, and one guy says, oh, I think this is one of these attention-getting statements, which it was. And then Jesus said what he wanted to say. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I've never found anybody that's had that verse underlined. Or something. But usually, it's not that you should. I'm not trying to embarrass you or something. It's just, it's just, it's, it seems so funny. He's David. Like, what? How do you eat that? How do you eat the? How do you eat work? You you eat in order to work. You know, and 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 uh, and here Jesus says what, what he's what he's dining on. His appetite, his his diet, is 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 actually somehow to take in the work that he's doing. Maybe you've been part of, the, you know, you've heard of seminars. Maybe you've gone to them where they, they, you take this little quiz and all that, and they say, "Oh, you'd be a perfect florist who's also an accountant," which doesn't sound right, you know. But you go, "Okay, whatever," you know. So I'm, I'd be a perfect architect. It says my little proclivities and tendencies, and so on. And and or or being around people drains you, or being away from people drains you, or that kind of thing. This energizes me. And so I, I, I'm going to be a student because that energizes me or something like this. Well, it turns out Jesus, Jesus is basically saying something like that, I guess. It sounds like it. That, that doing this particular activity, it sounds like, actually energizes him. And, usually, and, and, and he's getting their attention. He's saying, the, 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 the diet I'm living on, but what he's really hearkening their attention to is the motivation, the fire, the engine inside me. 
What fuels me? What integrates me? What lays me down at night? What wakes me up in the morning? What thrills me? What keeps me? What I'm zealous after? What, what, what keeps me burning? And not just like lighting a match. What keeps increasing in me? Uh, it's not just for a perpetual motion, absurdity. I, I'm, I'm thrilled with this. The more I do, the more I'm thrilled to do it more, to accomplish it, to finish it, to fulfill it. It's the will of Him who sent me in this kind of way in order to accomplish His work. He's not just doing activity, it turns out. He's not just saying, I'm doing God's will. Whatever He tells me to do, I have to go do. No, He's saying, God has assigned to me a purpose, a, a labor, an endeavor. And I can see what His great purpose is. He's given me a, a portion of it in order to fulfill that work. I, I, I find myself integrating all that I am and it thrills me. It wakes me up. It lays me down. It, it, it gives me rejuvenating joy to, to, to enter into this kind of effort day after day after day and it thrills me. Why is He saying this to them? He's actually just told them, I have food to eat you don't know about. He's telling them what fuels His inner passions. What, what motivates him, what thrills him. And he's talking to his guys who are his key leaders, his key followers. And he's saying they don't know anything about this. Think about that. These guys were not just guys that come every month or something like that. I'm not trying to shame you if you just came once a month or something. But, just, but you, you know the kind of person that's too busy to really be involved and, and uh, doesn't feel like they're too religious and... And uh, don't mind coming on Easter and Christmas. And, you know, they're kind of on the periphery of things. These guys were not that. These guys were heavy hitter leaders. These are the ones, it says in verse 2, I think, they were out baptizing John the Baptist. This is a Baptist church. You've got to be impressed. I'm baptizing John the Baptist. These guys are in the leadership roles. Okay, think about that. So here's heavy hitter leaders. The people make the program run. The guy, guy's so sure about what's going to happen next. What's on the schedule? What's our budget? What's our program? And, and, and what are we, what's our theme this year? What are we going to do? You see, they were involved in this kind of stuff so much that they would tell Jesus, it's time, we've got to eat, let's go. And these were guys, Jesus said, you don't know what's motivating me. You've got the exterior program running fine, but you don't have the internal zeal that I have and he knows something about them, they're going to flame out. They're going to, they're going to burn out on this. It's going to be toxic to them. It's going to, it's going to disintegrate their life eventually because they're going to find a, a way to negotiate and accommodate and do just a little thing that fits their local situation. They're going to become ever-shrinking and just think about doing stuff for them and just go back home. That's where they were headed. From the great revival thing, they were headed home. And they, had not, they were starting to miss the grandeur and the goodness of what God was doing in such a way to finish it. They were just involved. Listen, they were just involved in the activity. They weren't, they weren't engaged in something that had a historic purpose that God was going to fulfill and to finish. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me, the purpose He has, in order to fulfill it all, to finish it all. They were, he was not, Jesus was not just busy with activity that needed doing. Listen, He was not just responding to human need wherever it was and being a good and kind and generous person the best He could and then when He ha didn't have enough money to give away, then He had to stop. He had to just kind of live on. No, Jesus was living and laying out His life in partnership with the living God in such a way that God's global purpose would be completed. And he could see that his day-to-day -day life was connected 
somehow, vitally, with the completion of all God's purpose. He knew he was just living out his life. He wasn't doing someone, he wasn't doing everything that needed to be done. But the, the way Jesus ordered his life, it was directly connected with the culmination of all God was ever pursuing himself to do. And it thrilled him to know that his day-to-day life was engaged with a global culmination, a global finale. And he could so see that. He could feel it. It leaked out of his conversations. He would, he would talk to them. The now is coming and now is. The Father is seeking worshipers. And he didn't have to generate feelings of compassion and try to feel loving about people. He could just lean back in the incredible passion of God, seeking and pursuing worshipers from every tribe and tongue and nation. And Jesus knew this was such a certainty that he knew he was not wasting his life at all to give himself in redemptive ways, to order his days so that he was engaged with a purpose that was so much larger than him, so much larger than his lifetime who's fulfilling something, not just the urgent things. He was living out what was ancient. So no wonder it fueled him. No wonder it thrilled him. No wonder it gave him a a, a calm and deliberate, but a fiery hot passion of life. And he knew his followers were busy with the program, eager to go home, keep their life routines. But he knew that that they didn't know the inner passion. They were just doing what Jesus did. They weren't living why Jesus lived. And he wanted this way. He wasn't scolding them. He wasn't saying, oh, you, you guys, you smokes, you don't know what you're doing. No, he was inviting them. He was using this whole event to, to wake them up, to open their eyes, to, to, uh, to appetize them somehow, to, to sink their teeth into something hugely significant with their lives. And I think he wants to do the same for you. We don't have time for me to generalize and talk about us. I need to talk with you. I need you to listen to what the Spirit of God is saying in your heart right now. But Jesus knew what was holding them back. What was holding them back is verse 35. Do you not say, yet there are four months and then comes the harvest. Do you not say? What do they say? What do you mean? Did someone say that? No, that was a proverb. That was a little saying they had. Verse 35. They had a little proverb. You won't find it in the book of Proverbs. In fact, there's two proverbs here. Because there were two problems, two, two reasons why that was blockading their vision to lift up their eyes and see and to know this dining appetite, to, to, to be part of the motivation, to be part of the purpose that Jesus is living. They were living at the external of the program. They weren't part of the purpose. They would agree with the purpose, but they weren't engaged with it. Jesus knew two things were holding them back. And he, he picked out a couple proverbs. You could tell he'd been thinking about this for some time. And they were proverbs, not in the book of Proverbs, just little sayings of the day. And, he, and there's two of them. One of them goes this, Yet four months, then comes the harvest. And the second was, One sows and another reaps. Let's talk about yet four months, then comes the harvest. Now, I've, um, I, I, I started growing little gardens back when I lived in L.A. with my wife, and we would uh, just kind of grow little things, and I'd look, check all the back of the burpee seed packets or whatever brand you get, you know, and, uh, and how many days does it take, and in this zone you plant here. Have you ever checked those out? You know, so I'm not quite a farmer. My dad used to be a farmer and stuff, but, um, but I've checked them on the crops, and, and it's, it's hard to find any crop that you plant the seed, and it grows, and it takes more than 90 days. I, I, I don't know of any, actually. You know, the, the perennials that grow every year, of course, they're always alive. But well, you know what that means about this proverb, yet four months? 
What time is that in a gardening or a farming schedule? It's too early to be planting. It's too early, maybe too early to be plowing. It's too early to do anything. Yet four months. You don't do anything. That'd be like, you know, saying something like, last, when, comes, when would come a farming harvest in, in New England? What, what, about July or something like that, the earliest? And so, what, what, something like that. So, what, what is that? About, about now, what if some guy, what about last month, some guy goes out and says, I'm going to start plowing the fields. You know what his friends would tell him? They'd tell him something like this. Yet four months, guy, come on. It was a whole proverb. It was basically what you told people that got all excited about getting something done and great, great things happening. Calm them down and say, yet four months. Que sera, sera, or Homer Simpson, uh, cool your jets, man. <laughs> I was like, Come, calm down here. Now, why does that pertain to these guys? Because if you had asked these guys, what about these Samaritan people? Will they ever come and follow the living God? Will they ever become worshipers in spirit and in truth and all that God wants to reveal? Will they ever be part of the Greek covenant? Will they ever be part of, of all that God's doing? And they would have to say, technically, yes. Because there's a lot of prophecies that say all the peoples, we sang some of them, by the way, this morning, all the peoples of the earth will come and worship Him. Technically, yes, but not this millennium, not these people now, because they're so dirty, they're so weird, and they're distant, they're so hostile, and they will never. They're just, just really hateful people. No, that's something, if you got them honest, they would say something like that. Technically, yes, but not now. And so, basically, it was a permanent postponement in their minds. There's a technicality, technically someday maybe, but but basically postpone, that becomes permanent. It's a permanent postponement about ever. And, and so the blockade, you know what I call it? I call it fatalism. That the way things are, the way things are supposed to be. You know, that's the way we'd make our world, the way we look at it, the way we live in it. We tend to want to make it, the, the, the way things are, the way things are supposed to be. It calms us down somehow. I call you to courage to look at your world and it's not the way God wants it to be. And He's changing it every breathing moment. He's transforming it. He's pushing His purpose forward, onward, inexorably. He's going to accomplish something that changes the earth. The world you live in now shall be different. And it is different now than it was a generation ago. It shall be changed. There shall be some from every tribe and tongue that will worship Him, honor Him, live out Christ's character. This cannot fail and must come forth. I'm not saying utopia. I'm saying an evangelized planet which some from every tribe and tongue are worshiping followers, living out His character in every tribe and tongue and place and people. Every language, every lineage shall follow Him. You live in that kind of certain world. But it's easy just to look out and say, these enemies, these hostile, these weird people from such and so and so and we're out there and so poor and so... And it's easy just to write them off as a permanent postponement and say, yet four months, then comes a harvest. Yeah, whatever, sometime. Especially people nearby. Especially the Samaritans who were actually people that had been shipped in by some imperial thing and half-breed went into the situation. It's easiest more than, oh, more than for any other people to kind of reckon the people nearby you as more distant from what God's going to do. Yet four months in comes out. The fatalism. And Jesus says to this, lift up your eyes. And he's not saying, would you take a look at those needs? There's people all around just going to hell and harvest and we don't get it. We don't do it. No one will. This is not a hand-wringing time saying we can't get good help. This is typically how this passage is preached. I can't see it. I can't see it anywhere in it. It's, 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 just, it's just radiant with hope. 
Lift up your eyes and see what God is doing. And you know what they did? If they lifted up their eyes, they would see verse 30 happening. What's going on in verse 30? The men that Jesus told to go get your husband and come here. At least six guys, probably a dozen or more, were coming out of the city. They were coming. They were coming with sticks, going to beat these guys up and get out of our well. No, they're coming to inquire. What is this all about? The Messianic. There's a way to worship in spirit and the truth that we can get in on this. What, 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 what are you talking about? Sometimes our families are going to be healed, which is amazing. You know what these guys did? You, look, you check verse 39 out. They said, they said we believe in you just because what the woman said it got, intrigued our hearts. But many of us believe, but we want you to come and, and tell the whole city and talk about it a while. We've got to hash this out and see how do we could really live this out. And Jesus stayed and all his guys, they camped in that town, lived in homes, honored guests for two or three days. You see, and then the people said, we've heard for ourselves and we believe. This one is, look at the conclusion, verse 42. With these Samaritan people come to the conclusion. This one is, what, what, who do they find out Jesus to be? That this one is indeed what? The Savior of the world. I don't think they should say that unless they felt themselves somehow saved. Saved from their own predicament and problem. Jesus' followers weren't looking for Jesus, the Savior of the world. But Jesus says, lift up your eyes and see that God is drawing now people to Himself that you may have written off. It's time. That's what Jesus is saying. Time blindness is, is later maybe. And Jesus is saying, hour is coming and now is. And so Jesus, let the Holy Spirit speak to you that, that, that you live in a, a crucial, pivotal moment in, in history. It's a crucial moment in your life where He's placed you nearby people who He's drawing to Himself. If you lift up your eyes, people are more eager and seeking after God than you'd ever believe. Say, not that guy at work. Well, uh, I, 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 I want to challenge you to do something for about that guy at work and those people that live nearby and those people down the corner around the way and all these new foreigners coming to your children's school don't know English and all, all kinds of problems. They seem to be. What if God's drawing the, the world to himself? And it could be that there's a life of significance, a thrill, a joy, a, a costly endeavor that could bear great fruit. A great, great fruit, a great, a great result, a great harvest to God. Second proverb, though, was something else that, that catches us, because the, they said something else. They had another saying said, 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 um, one sows, another reaps. You know what that is? It's, it won't find the book of Proverbs. That's an April fifteenth kind of statement. Boy, we do all this work and it comes to nothing. <laughs> Basically, says whatever I try to do, it won't come to anything. It doesn't matter. I don't matter is what that says. It's futileism, not feudalism like medieval. Futileism. Fatalism is the first. Futileism is the next. It's futile. Why should we try? It's going to take so long to change them and all that kind of. What can I? What can little old me do? I'm just me. One sows, another reaps. And you know what Jesus says to that? He says, "Yeah, that is true. I have sent you to reap for what you haven't labored for. Others have labored, and you've entered into their labor." He's saying, you're joining in with what others are doing. It all doesn't depend on you. Do you realize what the assumption behind this proverb is? Is Well, if anything's going to change, I'm going to have to do it. If you carry that around, do you mind me just telling you that, I know this isn't you. You just have a friend who gets this way. (laughs) Well, if anything's going to have to do it, I'm going to have to do it. You can't trust anybody, you're going to have to do it. So this is the way your friend thinks sometimes. And you know, your friend's a little arrogant. It all depends on them. 
And you just wish your friend would just calm down and just do their part and trust that others can fill in their part. Don't you think, don't you wish somebody, people be more like that? And so you may just, maybe you challenge yourself at that point because actually, you know what we do? We just give up entirely. If I can't do it all, if I can't change the world personally, why should we even try? Would you please just do your part? Jesus is, is, is welcoming you into the labor of others. He's welcoming you. Your world is changing, but it doesn't depend on this church or you or the mission committee. Do your part, and it's a wonderful part. It'll be a pivotal part. It'll be a wonderful uh, deal. And just you giving yourself to one other family, God could leverage huge things out of, out of small obediences. So how, how, can we, how can we live uh, uh, to break the fatalism, to lift up our eyes and to see what God is doing and join Him in it? How can, we, how can we break out of the futileism and it all depends on us and we just do little teensy bitsy things? I'll just, I'll just close with this. Uh, just a summons to... to uh, just, just two summons. First of all, you need to be somehow uh, lifting up your eyes, your vision to see what God's doing and join Him in it. How do you do that? Well, uh, I think the simple, greatest way, I've said this last night, I'm going to say it again, is you you will see as far as 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 you've prayed. I I want to challenge you to be asking God to fulfill His purpose. Now listen, some of you feel like a failure in prayer, and I have time to tell you, give a whole seminar on prayer and stuff like that, but it's really simple. A lot of us have simply prayed about our problems. Instead, God wants you to pray toward His purpose. Say that again. Most of us have just ended up praying about our problems. Instead, God wants us to pray toward His purpose being fulfilled. That will rejuvenate your praying more than any other simple thing. To pray with biblical hope for what God's doing in other people's lives instead of just praying about your problems. Most of our prayer meetings, they come up with just request management, I call it. This is a, what about oh, any requests? Well, Ann Doris, you're there. she's sick again. I thought she died. Uh, no, they're still running tests. Well, we'll just pray for the Lord to watch over her. Like, God's not watching or something. Amazing the, the banal and superficial ways we pray for little requests that we, don't, we know don't matter much. Or the desperate, urgent things are all about us. Could I welcome you to the adventure of seeing what God's doing and asking Him to fulfill it in the lives of people all around you? Now, I, I mentioned it last night. I'll say it again. I, I, I brought some prayer guides and I'm not trying to sell books. I would give these to you if you would use them. But if I give them to you, you wouldn't value them. So uh, this is called Seek God for the City. It's 40 days of prayer. There's about 100,000 people using this now. This is uh, going on right now. Some of you may, may, may have it. This is, uh, I think this is day 12 of the 40 days to Palm Sunday. This is only a couple bucks. Get this. Two bucks is pretty good for any one prayer you might ever pray. These are, these are some of the most practical prayer guides we've ever done. Simple scriptures and street-tested prayers. There's, there's six kinds of these. They're a couple bucks each. You can get a set for, for cheap. But my point was, again, I, I, I don't care about selling you books. I want you to pray different, pray wiser, pray simpler for God's purpose to be fulfilled in people's lives. Find any way to do it you can. And you'll lift up your eyes to see what God's doing and the people at work and the people all around you. Somehow you'll see God bringing people to Himself. Second thing, link your life with others. See, the first one is about, about fatalism. If you start praying for what God's been doing in people's lives, you'll break the, the idea out of your mind that God's, they're stuck and they're going to stay that way or they're not worth saving. You'll start seeing God's unfolding wonderful things in the story of their lives. And you'll see it when God draws them to himself. Second thing is, is regarding this futilism, 
Would you link your life with others? Would you become aware to live large somehow? That's what this mission conference can give you an opportunity. Somehow become freshly aware of what other people are laboring and you can join in that labor. And I want to challenge you to some of you just take initiative and rise up and do something locally. There's a church in, in, uh, in, in, uh, in Nashville that found there's a lot of Kurdish people. This is 10 years ago. The, the, when Saddam Hussein was just massacring Kurdish people, they had to leave, they had to, to survive. And thousands of them washed up on the beach in Nashville, Tennessee, and some of them in Dallas. And a few churches noticed all these Kurdish refugees and a few kind-hearted souls engaged the rest of the congregations to provide houses for them and relationships. And it seemed to be kind of cool toward the gospel, but they just kept persistent in loving these, these Kurdish refugees that came into their community. And right now, some of you are doing the math and realize that's like those Cambodians, that's like those Vietnamese. Vietnamese people. That's like those people from India nearby. That's like the people that run the hotel nearby. They're from Pakistan. And you're thinking, yes, I want you to think that. Because, because but what they found is that as they began to give themselves in relationships, and it took, it took years to develop, that, that they began to have, they began an opportunity to, to visit some of their Kurdish friends in North Iraq, even during the darkest of times. And now, I just got some fresh reports. You should see the churches being planted in Kurdistan. In northern Iraq and in southern Turkey and, 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 and Syria, there's, there's movements to Christ that these people, ordinary people, you would, you'd look at them and say, they're more ordinary than normal. They're people like you. You're probably smarter and more well-equipped than these people. And yet, and yet they just followed what God was giving them. And they linked their efforts to each other. And they pulled together and they sensed God is giving us a, a thing amongst the Kurds. And they just did their part. And God's leveraged something huge in ways they could never have planned a war and all that kind of thing to, bring, to make their efforts more, more crucial, more valuable. So would you not despise days of small beginnings and give yourself as God gives you opportunity to lift up your eyes and see what God's doing, but also link your life. Lift your eyes, link your life with others. And that's what this partners. You're gonna, we're, gonna, we're about to go now to, to a, a special session. We're hearing about partners, I think. I hope, hope we will, right? And uh, boy, I love that, that outfit because of what, what they represent. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to ask you to just to pause just a moment. I'm going to close in prayer. If you, would lift, if you would choose to lift your eyes in days to come, what I want you to do is just to, is just to while, while you're seated there, just as a symbol, as a gesture to God, as I pray, you, that you would lift your, lift your uh, face toward the, toward the ceiling. That's all you'll see. But it would be a gesture. Say, Lord, yes, lift my eyes.